Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Oed Fadida, a host on the network. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Jack Cohen about his new book, Nurture Their Nature. Rabbi Jack serves as the Director of Jewish Education and Community Engagement for Hebrew Academy High School of Miami. Prior to his current role, Rabbi Jack served as Director of Education for Olami North America. He studied in the Mir Yeshiva and Yetzad Yakolel in Jerusalem. He holds a BA in Physics and Philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania and a Master's Degree in Education from Harvard. He publishes regularly, of note, weekly articles on his website, theexpressionoflife.com, which explores life wisdom from Judaism. He strives to make Torah as relevant and accessible for all. His book, which he co-authored with Rabbi Dr. Yosef Lin, Nurture Their Nature, published by Mosaica Press, serves as a guide for parents and teachers on how to find their own sense of unique self and purpose and how to, in turn, ignite that in their children and students. It is an honor to have Rabbi Jack with us. Rabbi Jack, thank you for joining. Thank you, Oha, and it's an honor to be here with you and talk about talk about our book. I'm very excited. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to write this book? So... Um... Yes, you know it's hard. It's hard to to uh, to figure out where where uh, these a whole book kind of where it starts from. And it usually goes way back. I'm sure it goes well beyond this, but I could tell you that when I was 17, I was in a in a college interview at Yale University. I'm, I grew up in Connecticut, so I had you know I had this idea planted in my head that I, that I really wanted to go to Yale, um, and I was sitting in the interview. And the interviewer asked me what I was passionate about. And uh, I thought things were going pretty well until then. I'm not sure if she heard me gulp when when she asked me that question. But I really didn't know. I mean, passion. I'm 17 years old. I, I barely know who I am. I'm just trying to survive high school. Um, I couldn't answer her question. I made something up because I, it was an interview. And uh, to get into good schools, you have to know how to make stuff up. Um, so I made stuff. I made something up. I was passionate about art or whatever. But I don't know if it was my. It wasn't my life passion. I didn't know my life passion. And um, I think that kind of at least, at least it left me with a, a kind of longing, you know, to say, "Wow, I would love to know what I'm passionate about. I would love to know like who I am in such a way that it could guide me to le- lead a life that's coherent. That's um, pointed somewhere where, um, you know, and this, this, I think only like later I was able to articulate, you know, how amazing would it be to lead a life where all the different moving parts of, of, of our lives can be integrated and, and, um, and pointed in, in the same direction, leading us, uh, you know, to the same place. That was this kind of like, that was the first time I think I felt it. And I think that's something over time, um, I think um, I th- I think you know it wasn't really until much later until I went to went to college and 
uh, not not to Yale, didn't get in. And I went to college and I, and I studied physics and philosophy, had these different interests, trying to figure out how they fit together. Um, at some point in college, I um, got really into um, thinking about God. I, I grew up believing in God, um, kind of nominally, um, you know, just like that culturally, that's just what people in my family, my community did. Um, I really didn't think about God in a real major way until um, until my gap year between high school and college. Uh, I was in Israel with peers who were really challenging my own belief. I was the you know the most re- I wasn't religious. I wouldn't objectively say I was religious, but relatively to my peers, I was like the religious one, and they really challenged me, and that broke down a lot of my 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 beliefs and really made me question and think. And then in college, I started getting into things more. By the end of college. Somewhere between the cracks of physics and philosophy, I, I, I needed more. And um, I decided that I wanted to continue my studies after college in, you know, th- seeing the intersection between uh, science and, and theology. But again, really, really now I see what I was looking for is like, who am I? You know, I was just trying to kind of like patch together my different interests. Um, I ended up going to yeshiva, um, which was, you know, an opportunity for me to study Judaism in a, in a more traditional way, in a non, non-academic way. I had actually gotten into an academic program and I was sharing my reservations with, with, a, with one of the professors of the program in, in Jerusalem. And he, he kind of like, he identified with me. He said, he said I, I get it. You just want to, you just want to, you know, he said in Yiddish, you just want to learn how to lay a blot. You want to learn how to just like read the Talmud from the source. And he was right. Um, but m- more than just reading the Talmud, what I got in, in the particular yeshiva I went to, and this is from my rabbi who was the head of that yeshiva, was how uh, profoundly Judaism views individual identity um, and the importance for, of, of individuality. Um, it's not just that Judaism tolerates individuality, which it certainly it certainly does. Judaism in many ways is is very much about individuality and i feel i feel blessed to have gone to a a yeshiva where where that was really central to the curriculum Uh, it was a two-year program the first year is more kind of like uh basics you know the second year is much more and very explicitly so about helping people understand who they are and there's a whole um curriculum going through classical sources so that we don't think there's some like newfangled you know pop new age whatever thing that we realize this is like part of classic um judaism since time immemorial and uh, and those sources i found them so personally moving and inspiring that um that years later i decided to together with uh rabbi dr yosef lin who was teaching one of those one of those um courses to let's put these together these sources are too important to remain in, in the hallowed halls of a small yeshiva in the outskirts of Jerusalem for like 35 guys at any given time. It's just, they're too important. And in our modern world, um, let's say specifically the modern religious world, which has a maybe a tendency to homogenize and um, and and think on, uh, on a big scale, the individual can get lost. So they're particularly important today. Amazing. I think you touched on two points that I... Number one is the idea of bringing out these sources. You know, this is not this new age thing, but this is something deep and fundamental in our tradition. And you write in the introduction, which, you know, regardless what you think about the book, but this is 
just the sources are unbelievable. And I think you're right. The book is also incredible, but just the collection of sources is, 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 is unbelievable. And, and on this idea of, of this not being new age. So it is refreshing to, you know, you embrace the fact that, listen, the drive that we're seeing today for finding oneself and, and who am I and, you know, my own journey and my unique self and all of that, all of this modern lingo is reflective of something a lot deeper. It's, it's not just a, a fad, but at the same time, you critique the modern day sort of understanding of what is the cell or, you know, what makes me unique. So maybe you can touch on the critiques on modern day self, modern day uniqueness. And how does the Torah, how do you guys view the, that sense of self? Yeah, I, I think that's a great, that's such a great question. Um, because um, I think Judaism, um, Judaism is not a monastic religion. And, um, you know, even, even the, you know, the, let's say a, a Kohen, the idea of, I'm ha- I have, my name is Jack Cohen, I happen to be a Kohen, which usually translates as priests. But even our priests are, are specifically um, mandated to be among the people. That's actually the role of, of the Jewish priest is to really be a leader by example within society. The uh, becoming a rabbi, anyone who is a rabbi knows that you you may have set set forth to become a rabbi because you know you're you, you see yourself as like a scholar or a, a thought leader or something like that. But you know that the work of a rabbi is that your phone rings off the hook, your your home becomes an open home, and and uh, you have to be involved in the world. And if you're involved with people who are involved in the world, you get exposed to absolutely everything. So because of that, Judaism very much has to grapple with the world it cannot live it cannot live in a bubble at the same time judaism is is meant to shed light upon the world um communicate in a way that is relevant and resonant to the world but judaism does have to balance that exposure with um preserving the integrity of of the wisdom that it's that it's sharing and so like like your question there there's this double edge sword always of how does this how does this relate to what's going on in the world how is it different maybe what what are the critiques how can it sharpen the ideas so um i i think i understand very well and i appreciate very much that there is this desire out in the world of uniqueness every you know if you're going to sell a product today it has to be bespoke and it has to be boutique and it has to be uh you know do diy and all these all these things custom fully customizable because we live in a world that thanks thanks to technology things can be very much customized um we also live in a in a post-industrial revolution world where things were very much homogenized and made on mass and and i think you know people um the human spirit just just rebels against that ultimately you know the human spirit is fundamentally unique that's just a, that's not a religious uh, dogma that's just a basic truth and so people are looking for themselves in a world that that is a uh, like a ha- you know the happy meal world of of the you know the middle of the or the second half of the 20th century where everything is seems to be the same i think the world kind of rebelled against that and um I remember I took Japanese in high school, and I remember at the time in the 1990s there was a phenomenon in in Japan uh, 
um, I, may, I may be butchering the name, but I remember it was called Chapatsu. And Chapatsu was this phenomenon that, that um, kids in Japan were, um, were dyeing their hair blonde. Um, it was a thing to be different. However, the the fad became so so widespread that it's, everyone was doing it. So now everyone went from having black hair to having blonde hair, and I think that that to me it's like it represents this um, this dilemma of individuality, this dilemma of when you create a counterculture of individuality, uh, a counterculture of quote unquote alternative music or indie music, um, and everyone does it. So then it's then then you're back to square one. <laughs> and that's that's the problem of of fashions and trends and fads and all these things. People trying to express themselves, but if if you're not able to get to the depth of who you are, where you truly are individual, just like you have a unique fingerprint and unique DNA and unique um um you know iris, um, if you're not actually touching onto your own real uniqueness, it's just some fake thing grafted on that you're you're trying to be different. And I think people in their effort to be different often overlook the fact that they are different. You know, if, if we weren't trying so hard to be different, we would, we would have the headspace to, to perceive what actually makes us different from the inside in actuality. And this is probably extremely exa- uh, exacerbated with social media, where every corner of the world sees the same fads and the same you know, ways to be different. Um, also, another two things, I think that your point number one is that it's, it's not, uniqueness can't be surface level, which is, I think, what you're touching on. And I think what pops up from the book also is that building your sense of self and your uniqueness is actually hard work. You can't fix it with hair dye. Like, it is actually a regiment of hard work of developing oneself. And I think that's really, like, two big differences that, that, that come up from the book. Um, it's also so it's also subtle you know as well it's like it's true that, that yeah like you can't fix it by um you know saying i'm gonna dye, dye my hair green or i'm gonna you know pierce this part or that part of my body because eventually you're gonna you're gonna bump into someone with the same body part pierced and you're gonna feel like they stole your identity you know and it's like i thought i was the only person who who pierced like the you know the bridge of my nose and then you meet someone with the piercing bridge of the nose and like you can't do that I did that, you know, <laughs> that's my thing. <laughs> um, and then you're, then who are you now? Now you have a, a existential crisis. Um, but I, I think more than that, um, when, let's say when it comes to spiritual uniqueness, and I'll, I'll just share this, you know, back when I was uh, 20, whatever, 24, and I was in yeshiva, I was taking this course on individuality. There we were talking about spiritual uniqueness. But even to your point about that, it's hard work and it's subtle. Um Part of the one of the major ideas, central ideas in, in our book, is this idea that there's different soul roots. There's a soul root of of love and kindness. There's a soul root of like discipline and, and sense of mission, and there's a soul root of of truth and integrity. Three, it's it's based on on Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. Um, but again, even even these deep spiritual ideas can also be become um, superficialized. Um, and it was just, a, it became a comical thing in our, in our yeshiva, um, that it's like, oh, you're such a, you're such a chesed person. You're such a love, you're such a love person. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a truth person. And it became this kind of like <laughs> this banter back and forth. And, and over time you realize that it's just, we, we, we love, we, we have such a deep desire to know who we are. 
and we we need it. It's a it's a need. I need to have identity. Identity is not a luxury. It's a need um, that we 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 skip and we to these superficial badges and and like hats that we wear. You know, to say this is who I am. You know, this this is, this is, we say we don't like labels, but we we like labels. We do like labels because they 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 kind of put us temporarily at ease that we know who we are. You know, I you know I wear a MAGA hat. I wear a you know. A, uh, 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 you know, whatever, uh, uh, you know, Biden hat, <laughs> um, whatever, right? You, you have, we have these hats that we wear. And we realize over time, the individuality is, is, um, is so subtle. When you get to, you know, when you meet a person, you have these um, judgments, you know, you size them up, you know, you're an Orthodox Jew, or you're, a, you're, a, you know, a young liberal, or you're a, you know, a, Trump supporting Hick or whatever, we know it's we know it's idiotic. I mean, truly, because you know if you actually end up spending enough time with someone, um, those those immediate judgments and typologies they they melt away. Um, even even fancy ones, even Myers Briggs ones, you know, even even the, the ones we speak about in the book, it's 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 you have to keep a certain sense of of depth and subtlety. These are just tools to help you see the person as they are, and um, and I think that's that it's important to to keep that that sense of the, we're talking about something very delicate, deep, uh, multifaceted um, that is the human spirit. We're just trying to use wisdom tools that we have to be able to see it and and live with it. Wow, and I think that's uh, also the experience you know every first year psychology student has when they start. Uh, putting into box into psychological boxes all their friends around them um (laughs) so about the title so you call it uh, nurture their nature and you're rooting that in the verse in uh, proverbs uh, right uh educate the child according to his nature according to his way yeah so how do you understand that verse it's a very famous verse how do you understand that verse yeah um yeah, so so just to say the full verse, so it says, um, edu- educate the child according to his way, so that when he grows old, he won't he won't stray away from it. Um, so just a few things to think about based on the you know the classical uh, commentaries on that verse is number one, the word for educate, chinuch, um, chinuch is education, chanoch in the in the verse um, is is the exact same word as to dedicate. In other words, when we're when we're educating a child, we're educating an adult, you know, we're so it's someone's first day at work. You're educating them, but you're not just educating them. You're it's a dedication. You you're you're sending them off, you know? Um, um just, you know, you know for an ex- as an example, you know, you're teaching you're teaching a child um, how to read. Um, you know, I have this now with my with my seven year olds. You're not just pouring in, you know, reading information into their brains. That's not that's not what education is. I mean, there is inf- everyone. We need to know information, but but in a certain sense, the sum total of the information is not is not just equal to its parts. What you're doing is you're setting them on a path of a lifetime of reading. That's the point. The point is they need to love it. They need to identify with it. They need to be excited by it because 
if they're going to do it their whole life, so then what kind of what kind of initiation is going to set them off on a life path of reading? Um, so to that end, the verse says, if you're going to send someone on a life path, it, it has to be aligned with their identity. Because if, because if it's not, it ain't going to last. No one's going, no one's going to do something for a lifetime just because you told them to do it that way. Or because you threaten them that if they don't do it that way, they're going to get a bad grade. They're not going to get into college, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to, you know, get married to, to, you know, all those things are external levers that we as educators pull because they give us results today. But the verse, which is written by King Solomon, known as in, in uh, Jewish scriptures, the wisest of all men, um, is telling you is telling you you have to look much bigger than that. It's not about it's not about while school is not even about while your kid is under your roof. You have to think on the scale of a lifetime. You have to give them an education that initiates them, that dedicates them on a path that will last for life, and that has to be aligned with their nature, the way God made them. Only when it's aligned with the way God made them will it last a lifetime. Right. That's such a, a different view of not view but state of affairs than what we have today where education has sort of become i call it like a, a dmv of education people come in you know <laughs> do the do the bureaucratic process and get a degree at the end um so so the teacher has a big role according to what you're saying to identify try to tap into the unique sense of the of the student and then provide them to initiate them to be able to live up to that, to their sense of self, is so big. It's such a big responsibility. I, you know, I don't think I don't think the teacher has to tell a student who they are. Um, although I think, if I remember my own, you know, I look back on my own life, there are these moments that different teachers of mine, either in a comment, you know, on an essay I wrote, or in like an after-school meeting. You know, they said something to to me to the effect of like, "You're really good at this," or you know, you have you have a very unique writing voice, or you keep working on this. You know, you, you're, you know, you there's something here. Those those kinds of like uh, they serve as like guides, like paths, like they show you a trajectory. I think that's a very important role. But but maybe more than that, more inclusive than that, I think a teacher's always trying to fine tune students to to find their path. On, on every on every level the little tips and tricks and hints and 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 uh, expectations you know you, you could you could do better I believe in you all these little things that we're doing throughout our educational process the teacher has to have in mind where they want the student to go and where they want the student to go can't just be what they imagine in their head it has to be as much as possible um, synthesized with with uh, the nature that they that they see in the student all the while, the student's the one making the decisions, you know? The, the, the educator's just kind of like they're spotting them along the way so they don't get lost, you know, and go down uh, rabbit holes that they may get stuck in. Right. And you, so you, t- you, you touch on this, on the, on, on this point, you, you bring this idea of what the heart desires. The part of the education should be to allow the child to sort of let his heart steer the way into uh, to, to, to what he 
what is his calling? And then from that, it's the teacher can pick up on that and, and work with that. So a more real, a practical question, but how do we balance on one hand, actually having to teach things, you know, you can't just do, okay, you can only know what you want to know. And at the same time, giving that space for mashali bochafet, what your heart desires. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very important question. Um, I'm not I'm not an expert in this um, in this topic, mostly because my whole career as an educator, you know, up until recently, was really working with college and post college um, students in informal education. So that that's a real luxury for you know an educator you know who's connected to individuality because when people are when kids are nineteen you know through thirty early thirties. That's really when 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 they're really people are really looking to figure out who they are and establish a life that is authentic to them. Before that age, um, high school students for sure are looking for it. And I just started working this past year with high school students um, here in Miami, so I'm starting to to figure out how to strike that balance. It's it's important to point out the verse that we mentioned before. It says, "Educate not the child, the youth." Hanoch lanar doesn't say hanoch liyeled or. Or, or or younger, um, because I think it's it's really at a youth at the at the teenage years that's really when when you when the, the parent and educator has to really kind of see where the kid is leaning. Before that, it's really more fundamentals. Of course, you have to leave some room. People, kids do think differently, whatever. But I think really you're trying to build the base. You know, my 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 parents were when I was a kid were very big on on making sure that I tried different foods. If I don't like it, I don't like it, but I have to try it. So I think. For, for kids, it's really me kind of exposing them, making sure that all of their powers are, are being expressed. And then once they start going 11, 12, 13, 14, then you start seeing which ones that they have gifts in and they hopefully they can see it themselves. And then you over time, you have to really empower them. Um, for example, in the high school just now, from last year to this year, one of the changes we made is that one of the tracks um, – we, we called it Jewish discovery. Um, first of all, we changed the name from uh, philosophy or, or the Hebrew word machshava um, to discovery. In, in other words, that itself is education, that so much of your Judaism as you become an adult is finding your own path, um, but also it's electives. So we wanted to give students that agency so that whatever class they're sitting in, uh, that period, they chose it. And I think that's especially important as the kids turn 16, 16, 17, 18. So we do it for 11th graders and 12th graders. Younger than that, we we felt like they don't they don't know so much what's out there. They don't know themselves so well. So more the the individual the leeway for individuality is much more in any given assignment or you know in class. Understanding that kids are asking questions from different. Obviously, we always have to be attentive to this. But kind of like we're not giving them that like large scale agency when they're 14, 15 years old to, to, to choose these courses because we, we believe that they're not yet um, aware enough of themselves or what's out there. Right. That makes sense. So what's really nice about this book is that it's not only talking about the importance of self-worth, but it also provides an actual structure and a system to, to get to that. Uh, you mentioned you bring up uh, Rev Dessler. And you bring up his five steps for growth, and you you build a lot of a lot of the book on that. So can you can you elaborate for us? What what is who was Rev Dessler, and what are the five steps? 
Um, Rabbi Liyahu Dasser was one of the great, um, the Hebrew term is Abal Musar. Abal Musar is a, a master of Musar, where Musar means is like the Jewish art and science of character development. Um, the Musar movement is, is attributed to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter um, was, one, was the authority in Europe at the time. Um, in 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 Jewish law and and Talmud and um, a very important figure, but aside from that, he felt that it was it was fundamental. It was a, a life and death for the Jewish community that if we did not make a um, a committed effort to working on character as a as an endeavor unto itself, that the foundations of Judaism would crumble. Uh, Judaism has a central belief that it, that everything is built on a person's character. You can't. Uh, there's no such thing as a person who is religious who does not have a robust character. Um, uh, otherwise, anything you do that's religious becomes a, a brittle, gilded-on, external, ritualized thing with no actually basis in you in who you are. Um, and um, Rav Dessler is of the Musar school. He actually is a, a descendant uh, of, uh, of Rav Dessler, of, of Rav Yisrael Salanter. Um, and um, if I'm not mistaken, I could be, I, I could be mixing it up. But, uh, but the point is he studied under the great, great uh, Musar masters. Um, and he, he was in, in England. And then later on, he was in uh, the, the, the Panovich Yeshiva, one of the, one of the most prestigious Yeshivas at the time in Israel. And he was really pushing very, very hard on on character, and in many ways he was serving as a bridge between a lot of the ideas in the zeitgeist in the broader um, secular world, and 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 Judaism. Um, and again, he wasn't uh, he wasn't considered a modern figure. He was in the kind of like the the, the core, um, what we would call today, you know, Haredi ultra orthodox whatever all these terms and and yet he was really um he was sharing some of the ideas from dale carnegie almost almost quoting them verbatim in in his talks um which is which is fascinating fascinating to you know for a figure in position where he was um anyways he one of these central ideas which he really dedicates a lot of time to in 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 this seminal talk is under, understanding who you are um, he would even use the word to number one recognize who you are. Just recognize, just observe yourself until you like. Oh, there you are. Then really understand what it means. And he he makes a big push that you could really only understand who you are in a deep way through the light of Torah. That's Torah is sh- is shedding light on on uh, on our identities. It's not just t- in telling us what to do. Um, instructing us what to do religiously and morally. It's actually shedding light. So he suggests studying specifically the book of Genesis of Bereshit to study the the forefathers and foremothers and understand who they were and to help us understand ourselves and see who we identify with. Really then working on that, like like, uh, perfecting it. He uses the word perfecting it. And I think his key point over here is that even though if you ask people what working on their character means, they're going to probably tell you all the things they're bad at first. It's like, I'm bad at this and I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. He's saying, that's true. We all have things we're bad at. But if you don't build up your strength, 
you're not going to choose the right things to work on and you're not going to have the motivation or the strength of character and self-confidence to be able to do it. Um, you know, my, my, my co-author, he has uh, these two, I think, very beautiful metaphors to, to describe this principle. I just want to just speak it out over here because I think it's so important. One is a hot air balloon. Um, you have a hot air balloon and you're sitting in it and it's not going up. So like, oh, you remember you didn't, you didn't uh, cut, the, cut the cords to keep the hot air balloon down. So you cut the cords. And then nothing, nothing happens. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, uh, oh, maybe, maybe it's because I have all this weight over here. So you take these sandbags that are in the basket and you throw them out. Nothing happens. And then you realize that the burner is on low. So it doesn't have enough hot air to lift off the ground. You know, and and sometimes if you were to if you would have ramped it up, maybe those loose cords would have come off, would have been plucked out of the ground on their own. You know, sometimes people say, you know, my problem is, I'm I'm so lazy, I'm so unmotivated. That's my problem. And it's like maybe you're lazy, maybe you're unmotivated because you don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. So it's not that you're lazy. I mean, everyone's lazy on some way. Everyone's lazy to do things they don't want to do. So maybe if you find what you're here on this planet to do, maybe if you find your sense of mission, your sense of purpose, what you're passionate about, then you'll be extremely motivated, right? And, and that's that's his core principle. And and um, and he, Rev Desler says a person needs to get to the point that they're like they're really running on all cylinders to the point that they could really even they could speak about about the trade. They're, they become experts. You become experts in what you are good at to the point that you can teach others that, 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 that part of, of life. And then once you have that strength built up, then you can, then you can now work on, on all the things that you're not good at, which is, which are lots of things, but now you have self-confidence, you have the discipline to work on something and develop something. Um, and you can use your strength to carry your weakness. You can use your motivation to carry your, you know, your lethargy, you know, if that's, if that's still an issue, um, et cetera. Right. I would I would just on a like, just a point uh, a beautiful point about the Musar movement uh, what you're saying about the the assertion that there needs to be a science of character development there actually needs to be a working on it and it's an interesting assumption that we all have that you know if you want to build a bridge you actually have to go study and learn how to build a bridge and then practice and then perfect it and then build a bridge but for ourselves for developing of ourselves we do zero work we you know we think that just seeing a nice Instagram reel about, you know, character development is good enough. We don't put in the work. So it's really, I think that's so valuable to hear today that, that, that it's an actual science and we actually need to put the work in to build ourselves. And touching on the idea of the, the positivity, starting with the strengths, the book is so profoundly positive. When you read the book, like it, it makes you so excited and happy to be yourself and to be alive. Uh, so so starting with the strengths, how do we identify our strengths? Um, identifying strengths, um, there's, there's there's many avenues. There's many avenues to to identify them. I mean, really, every person's life is just chock full of data. You know, we live in an, in an age of data, and we know that you know if you're a marketing department, you can extract data from 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 everything you know um in our own lives there's data everywhere um it's just you have to figure out what you're looking for so you know 
one of the exercises that we that we give there in the book, but really requires more more detail to really to really do. We we tried to keep the book, even though it does have a kind of practical direction to it. We didn't want to try to do too much with it um, because then it would take another ten years to finish writing. So so we kind of kept it more 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 theory, even practical theory. But one of the exercises, which I'll tell you right now, is very simple. You take your life, you think about your life, you divide it into 10 chapters. You know, what what that means is every person would divide it differently, right? But let's say you would say, um, you know, from when you were a conscious young adult. So high school, you know, you would say high school, summer camp, my gap year program, my my uh, my first two years of college, my last years of college, my first job, my second job, whatever it is, right? And then you you write stream of consciousness, you journal stream of consciousness, with a focus on what activities did you feel great about doing, what achievements did you feel proud proud of, um, where were you running on all pistons, right? And a person, when you, normally when we journal, we kind of, we meander. And that's that's fine for, for regular journaling. There's a kind of focused journaling that you just start start going through things that come to mind. And if you can, you're like retraining your mind to look at positives, not, 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 not just traumas, right? What, what actually worked? Once you do that, you do that for like, let's say seven to 10 chapters of your life. You, you grab a highlighter and you highlight, I recommend different colors. You highlight themes that keep cropping up. Every person will we'll find some themes that cut across most of those chapters, the kinds of projects, the kinds of initiatives that you gravitated towards, the kind of leadership amongst, I don't necessarily mean at a podium, like amongst your peer group, amongst your friends, like what role did you play in any, in any of these situations will probably be kind of similar. And what, you, what you're going to get is you're going to get this kind of like um, image that kind of appears of, of your strength, like fingerprint. And, and that, that, that is incredibly valuable. Usually what happens is people by the end of it, when you kind of like, okay, is this, this, and this, you're like, oh, <laughs> I knew that. That's obvious. Right. And which is great because if you get to the point where like, this is so obvious, then fantastic. You did your job, but the point is now you've done the work. It's like, you've, it's like, uh, you've looked at the data, you know, and the data confirms something you, in, you before intuited, but because now it's like you did the work. Now you have to live up to it because now you know it so clearly how could you not choose your job based on these strengths you know often people choose jobs where 80 percent of their of their work and their headspace is 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 using things that there are, are secondary to their to their strength profile and 20 percent draws on their core like 80 percent um strength repository arsenal like that that's draining that's that's a setup to be drained. You it should be that your job primarily uses your primary strengths. Of course, every job is going to ask you to do twenty percent. Let's say you know to choose an arbitrary percentage of of things that you're not awesome at, but you can pull off fine. But that can't be the bulk of your job. And when you have this list of of, of strengths, like it, it really there's no excuse at that point. It says this is what I'm. I'm excellent. This is my comparative advantage, and therefore, this is where I need to really lean in and 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 utilize these in the day to day. Nice. You also mentioned another one in the book of seeing what you complement or 
seeing what you admire in others. And that process of seeing what's good in others is reflective of what's inside you as well. Yeah. So I, I would so I would say that this that that exercise is getting at a different part of of the soul. So in in Jewish um, kind of uh, consciousness, there's there's these different parts of the human soul. The soul is not just like an amorphous um, ghost inside the machine. There's different. There's an anatomy to the soul. So the part I just spoke about in the exercise would be called kochot nefesh. Kochot nefesh are the powers of the, the lower soul, the part of you that's kind of interfacing with the world. Um, the exercise that you're you're pointing to, which I which I absolutely love, is looking at something more in in the perceptive part of the soul, not the active um, the active world interfacing part of the soul, the inner perceptive part of the soul called the Shoresh HaNeshama, the root of the higher soul, the Neshama. What that means is it's like the lens, this kind of Kantian lens through which you see the world. You know, two people will go to the same event, wedding, concert, uh, art gallery, and, and the way they talk about it, the way they construct it in their mind is, is radically different. Why? It's not just because they were socialized differently. You could take two people who were socialized exactly the same. You could take, you could do a twin study and take two twins in the same family, and and they will still perceive things differently. They will admire different people, or they will admire the same person for different reasons. Why? Because in the depth of the psyche, there's um, a lens that that is the way they perceive what they value, their spiritual values. One person can describe a person as so kind and compassionate and patient, and the other person will describe that same person as wise, intellectually honest, rigorous, you know. Are they talking about two different people? No, they're talking about the same person, but but those are their own values through which they process the world. And and therefore, by seeing who we praise and why we praise them, that gives us clarity on, on ourselves. By seeing what we value in others, that gives us more of a sense of our own value than it does of whoever it is we're talking about. Right. You bring this up in the, in the book, this, this interesting point about the, the neshama, the, the lens that we have, that it's so part of our, part of us, that we sometimes, we, we forget that, that that's a lens, meaning that's like, it's so close to us that we just take it for granted that that's how we see the world. And that's how everyone sees the world. And that's how, I think it's a, it's a, it's something very valuable to be aware of, that that's your unique lens to the world, and it's not obvious that everyone sees the world that way as well. Yeah, uh, not at all. And oftentimes we get we, we 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 can get into arguments because we don't we don't we're not appreciating that that well, wait one second we're just maybe looking at this from two different perspectives, and we can speak past each other, which is I think the most. Um, tragic slash annoying thing which is this is just not going anywhere right and i think if you have a perspective that's able to to see if you have a perspective that's meta in the sense that it could see that people have different perspectives it's so powerful and this is the talmud actually does this all the time the talmud is actually able to then identify how two parties who seem to be having an argument are really just seeing the same thing from two different angles um and and later people in the Talmud who have kind of like they're not 
part of that heated debate, they have the the advantage of coming later. Um, they're able to say, wait, hold on a second, hold on a second. You're, you're, these two opinions actually can be fit together and they can be talking about different circumstances. Um, I'll just tell you, I, I don't know if this will be interesting for your podcast audience, but um, the, the Arizal says about Rav Papa, um, Rav, Rav, Rav Papa is one of the later authorities in the Talmud and he often comes as an arbiter to earlier arguments and very often the, the halakha follows his opinion and the Arizal says about Rav Papa that in his name you see his his own spiritual fingerprint. His name is is Papa which is a uh, a pe pe aleph. The the letter pe can be also pronounced as po. Um, so po po aleph meaning the Arizal says he's able to stand over here and he's able to, to, to see Rava's perspective. And he's also able to stand over here and see Abaye's perspective. And then he's able to see the Aleph, the kind of the oneness that is able to, to unify both opinions. And that's his strength as a kind of an editorial uh, third-party perspective that's able to put the other perspectives into a uh, integrated whole. Wow. That's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> uh so once we we are able to find our unique self or, or identify our strengths, uh, there's also pitfalls that we have to be aware of. There's also sort of the the, the challenges and responsibilities that we have for being ourselves, um, and you touch on a few of them. Uh, one of them being arrogance. So so how do we stay away from arrogance? How do you understand arrogance and 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 humility? The, the 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 classic Jewish image for arrogance is is um, is leavened bread. You know, you know classically in uh, in Pesach Passover we we abstain from leavened products, and we eat if we're going to eat uh, grain products, it's going to be matzah, which is obviously unleavened, and though that paradigm of matzah versus chametz, unleavened bread is one of these things that you just across the board, you see across Jewish commentaries, we see this this clarity that matzah is representative of humility and um, and chametz, leavened bread, is, is representative of arrogance. And I think it's actually very evocative and illustrative um, visual. What it means is um, humility is not saying you're nothing. You are, you know, you're matzah. Matzah is is a staple. You know, we use it as a staple during Pesach. It is the centerpiece of the Pesach Seder. It's a grain product. It, it will fill you up quite a bit, actually. You know, um, that's matzah. It's you know who you are, but you're not pretending to be any more than what you are. Flour, water, that's it. There's no there's no optics. There's nothing. I'm not I'm not puffed up. I'm not trying to be more than what I am. Whereas arrogance is is uh, compensating arrogance is 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 because i don't know who i am i need to puff myself up you know like uh, ant many animals have as a defense mechanism they fan out you know their neck or they put out feathers or they get really big because they're scared of a predator and so they need to make themselves look bigger and i think when a person a person acts arrogant whether he or she knows it or not they're just doing the same thing. It's just, it's just. I don't want to be called out. I don't want to. I don't want to look like a failure, um, and so I need to 
I need to present bigger. Um, that's arrogance. So in, in theory, even though it's counterintuitive, in theory, the more a person knows their strengths, a person will actually should in theory become more humble if they're doing if they're doing it properly, which is totally counterintuitive. The more you're comfortable with who you are, comfortable in your own skin, the less you have to name drop and uh, and virtue signal and do all the stuff that people do. Because I know who I am. I know I have value. I know I bring value to any any environment um, I'm in. I know that God is is guiding my life and places me where I need to be. So I could just put I can just put my head down. I could do do what I have to do. You know, I don't have to prove myself to other people, and I don't need to put anyone down for me to feel my self worth. If a person doesn't have that, then they're in trouble. Then they're high, then then they're highly at risk. Right. That's such a such a valuable and important point. Uh, going after sort of that image that we have of the humble person as this meek, weak person on the sideline who's quiet, who doesn't really participate and engage. And you bring, and, and we see this throughout throughout the Torah, that our most humble characters were the most outspoken. And I mean, Moses, who's considered the most humble guy out there, is literally fighting with God, arguing with him, you know, bringing him to the bargaining table. So it's it's such a valuable point. Um, yeah. Moshe really is, it represents that so, so clearly, um, that, that balance between humility, um, and confidence. It's not, it's not even a balance. And maybe we look at it as a balance, it's not a balance. It's just true humility is a, um, an honest confidence and uh, with, with a confidence is not exaggerated. It's, um, you're answering the call of duty. You know, when you use your strengths it's because your strengths are called upon. Right. We're nearing the end, but I, I, there's there's another pitfall which is you touch on, which is honestly I think so relevant today, which is competition. We're we're in such a highly competitive society, and so how do we vaccinate against that? You talk about vaccinating against competition. So so how do we not fall into the into the sort of the trap of competition? We, we, we published this book. Um, I actually forget now. I, I, I think it, it ended up coming out, you know, during, during COVID. Um, <laughs> it was pointed out to me that, that we weren't trying to be controversial um, about vaccines. But anyways, yes, the, the, we, we do think that there's, there's this environment of, of, of competition, the market and, and, and whatnot. And uh, what we point out in the book and this was, I, I really got this notion, heard this notion initially from someone named Rabbi Zachariah Greenwald, who has a, um, a, uh, a seminary for, for post-high school um, girls in Jerusalem. And um, he speaks about that the West has this, this Olympic mentality, this mentality that um, we, we define people, we define everything on these like top 10 lists. First place, second place, third place, um, and that's it's it's obvious to us that that's actually the way you you understand and chalk up the world. Oh, how how else can you understand things if not first place, second place, third place? Um, but he he points out that that idea is a, is has its roots in in um, in Roman 
um, kind of mentalities and really before that, even Greek, you know, the whole idea of the Olympics of identifying who is the fastest, who is the strongest, uh, that podium vision of things um, is so deeply embedded in our consciousness. Um, we're, we're, we're competing for that first place. Um, so much so that I saw this interesting article about second place winners in the Olympics. You, you know, again, that we talked about data, you could analyze people's faces on the podium in second place. The third place person um, has more of a smile classically than the second place athlete. Um, the second place athlete is usually frowning. And the third place athlete is like happy that, that they got something. <laughs> um, it's like, that's like devastating. You're like, you, you swam like 0.02 seconds <laughs> slower than the first place. It's like, why, why, why are you sad? You know? And, and I think this, this comes back to this, this, this notion that ultimately we're really competing against ourselves. This is not to say this is not some sort of a socialist um, vision of things. Competition is very useful. It's very useful. It does, it does tap into a kind of raw human drive and, and, and whatnot. I'm not, we're not trying to eliminate uh, competition give um, smiley face stickers to everybody, but the point is that that we do need to counterbalance that um, with an inner vision of things, an, uh, an identity that is it's not my identity. You know, the, whatever place I got in the science fair or in or in the uh, the track and field competition doesn't define me. It was just the competition was helpful to push me to 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 run my 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 personal best. I'm competing against myself. Um, ultimately, I can only I can only compete against my my own potential. Um, it's ridiculous for me to compare myself to someone who has a different different genes, different body type, was raised by a different family, had access to different resources. You know what what exactly am I comparing? Um, and I think that that's why I think reformatting and restructuring how we how we see ourselves and understanding who we are what our strengths are and what we're really here to do is is fundamental for for healthy self-esteem and healthy relationship with other people i lost your audio oh i'm sorry oh sorry i'm saying that uh, this is such a liberating message the moment people internalize this then it's sort of a sigh of relief i don't have to like constantly prove myself like i have myself i have my chalik my portion in this world yeah. and nothing no one can touch on that you talk about uh, you mentioned how uh, there's no like no one can touch take your spiritual or your, your unique sense of self in the world no matter how much they win or you're still gonna be there relax which is great so it's so profound um we have a few mm-hmm. minutes i'm going to take advantage and and, yeah. and ask you so, so you, we sort of started, you take the reader in the book on a journey, you start them off with knowing oneself and developing their, their unique strengths, staying away from pitfalls. And then you provide at the end sort of uh, practical applications, how to apply your sense of self. Um, we live in a world where at the end of the day, most of our things are going to be alike. Like we're, we're all going to eat and we're all going to drink and we're all going to do, if we're Jewish, we're going to do Sabbath and we're all going to get a job. And so how to apply that unique sense of self. Um, so a few more minutes, maybe you want to give us a, a, an example of how we can take something that everyone does and make it our own. Yeah. Um, okay. So we spoke a little bit about, about um, the professional world. And I think, even though I think finding the right job is really important. Um, my co-author, Rabbi Lin, he actually does a, 
career coaching. Uh, that's a lot of what he does on any given day. And I think it's important. We spend a lot of time, a lot of energy today. Um, and it's not to be, it's not to be uh, poo-pooed. Um, you know, I, I think there is an idea from like an older world. It's like, listen, it's just a job and, you know, just, you know, you're just paying the bills. Um, there's something to that, you know, it is, but I think it's just, it occupies too much of our time for us to, to not choose jobs that are aligned with our strengths. Um, and that we feel happy to, to go do on any given day. Cause, cause it is a lot, but I, but I don't want to use these, these, you know, these last few minutes on, on that as important as it is. Um, let me, let me just give, you know, maybe, maybe a couple of examples. Um, when the way a person studies Torah um, is is very deeply connected to their identity, um, I would argue that that your the, the when getting to the kind of subtle, deep spiritual fingerprint of, of of a person, as we've been talking about, there's nothing like learning Torah. Um, you know, when it comes to Sukkot and people buy their lulav and their etrog. Um, you know, there's different, different tastes, you know, um, I like my, uh, my kind of like uh, tall and, and thin Metro. Some people like the short and fat ones. Some people like the ones that have a little skinny on the, on the middle. And I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome that people get to choose their thing. People, they decorate their sukkah. People decorate in different ways. Some people use the Christmas lights. Some people use, you know, the, 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 the plastic fruit. Some people like real fruit. Very, I think it's all awesome stuff, but to, you know, you're, the way your mind works is what comes comes out when you learn Torah. Um, when you classically in Judaism, we learn bechavruta. We learn with a with a pair, and I think when you learn with someone, I've been learning with my with my chavruta now three, four, eight years. <laughs> we learned for eight years in a row. We've been friends for a long time. We've been learning for eight years. You know, on most on pretty much every weekday, and. We know each other so well, you know, it's like, you know, the kinds of questions they ask, you know, what makes them curious, you know, the things that bother them, you know, how to communicate to them so that they understand what you're saying. And of course you get to know yourself as well, you know, because the, the person reflects back to you, like, what do you mean? You know, if you, if you speak in a certain ambiguous way, um, so that your chavruta really helps you sharpen that. You really get to know a person, and I think it's it's liberating to know that that's part and parcel of what to, what learning Torah is. We pray every day, v'ten chelkenu, as you mentioned before. Give us our portion. Give us our slice of the pie. Every person has their own slice of the pie, their own way of seeing things, their own perspective, their own ways of thinking. The the, the parts of Torah they find interesting. Uh, my chavruta always says to me, "Okay, oh here we go." A, you know, a, a philosophical tangent, you know, when we're learning Talmud, which is more legal. And he, and he knows, he knows, I like it. You know, I try not to do it all the time because we're learning Talmud, but but I like to take the philosophy. And he, he goes, here we go. <laughs> you know, and that's part of me. And and it, it allows you to really accept yourself, to know yourself and accept yourself. It frees. And there's something I've, I've, I've realized, you know, as I get older, it liberates your intuitions. Intuitions are so important. I think when we're when we're younger, particularly let's say in the in the yeshiva system, you you become kind of like overly kind of paranoid about your intuitions because maybe maybe they are wrong more you know more often when you're young, they're kind of like off the rails your intuitions and they're maybe informed by pop culture and other things you, you've you've consumed. But as you become 
older and more kind of like rooted in real stuff, your intuitions are so holy. And the more you're able to accept yourself and know who you are, the more you allow, if you have a philosophical bent, you allow yourself to go down that, that path because you know it's, it's part of the, the mind that God gave you is uh, that he wants that he's telling you to apply to Torah has this intuition. So like go with it. You know, I think that's, that to me is a, is a liberating perspective on, on Torah. Um, wow. That's so profound. And it's so funny, like trying to describe for people who didn't go to the yeshiva process, like they don't, it's so hard to describe to them. Like sometimes when I talk about my chavruta, people think I'm talking about a wife, but it's like, <laughs> like we've been learning for five years already together wow. day to day. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable experience. I highly recommend people to, to, to try that if they yeah. have an opportunity to. Um, I want to close off with a quote from the book. I think this was a very powerful quote, which is, you are a one of a kind gift to the world from Hashem, you and every single person you meet. Your mission is to use the Torah to identify and bring to fruition your soul's unique constellation of spiritual powers and ambitions and help others do the same. So I think that was such a profound, uh, profound uh, idea. And uh, Rabbi, where can where can people find the book and where can people find more about you? The, um, the book is available on Amazon. Um, and uh, we just did our second printing, so it, it should be there. Um, if you can't find it there for some reason, if it's uh, you can look on Mosaica Press. Um, and um, and in terms of in terms of myself, um, you know, I publish on. You mentioned it. Thank you for mentioning it. I publish on the expressionoflife.com, theexpressionoflife.com, um, and it's just weekly. Uh, short essays that I try to make, you know, take Jewish ideas that are relevant to day to day life. Um, I, you know, I, I believe that Torah is is shining light on life, and I try to do that, you know, every week. Just try to take an, a, a short uh, insight that that really applies to life to anybody's life, Jewish and not Jewish. Uh, as a general rule, I try to I, I try to make ideas universally relevant. Um, even though they're coming from you know tr- traditional classical Jewish sources, um, if you forget that URL, you can you can uh, go to rabbijackcohen.com and it'll take you there. The audio cut out again. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jack. That was an honor, and uh, thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you so much, Owen.